0: Matthew 5, everyone should be there, verse 17. Here's the question. How good is good enough? That's a tough question. Um, you, you might have heard it presented in different ways, you know. If God were to ask you, if you were to go up to heaven and God were to ask you why I should let you into my heaven, what would you say? You've heard that before. Um, most people, most people in the world would start with Things like, well, I've lived a pretty good life, you know, and uh, they would do that good pile, bad pile stuff where I'm hoping that the good deeds that I've done in my life would be uh, greater than the bad deeds that I've done and God would measure like we measure and he would look at things and say, well, you've done more here than you've done there, so welcome in, into heaven. Now, um, the problem is though, even though those are common responses and, and maybe you've even had a response like that, it still doesn't answer the question, does it? How good is good enough? Well, what's he require? How, how am I supposed to be good enough to get in heaven? How do I know that answer? Uh, sounds, th- those questions sound, one, maybe like a modern question or maybe a clever question a pastor would ask in a sermon, but um, it, it's a question, I believe, that the people, the multitudes listening to Jesus on that mountainside thousands of years ago would have been asking themselves. It's the natural outworking of everything Jesus is saying, Right? Quite honestly, um, in just a several sentences in Matthew 5, a, f- a handful of paragraphs, it would only take minutes for them to hear what Jesus said, um, m- my guess is that it left the crowds grasping for that answer. O- okay, wait a minute, you've changed everything. Or you're implying that everything's changed. So I've got questions. Remember, if we just deal with the first section of Matthew 5, Jesus has just rearranged the concept of happiness. (laughs) Blessed are, happy are those who who are mourning over their sin, who are broken over their sin, people who are spiritually bankrupt and have no problem saying that they have a need. Blessed are happier people who are meek and small and humble and hunger for righteousness, who are merciful towards others, who walk in peace and give peace away, or pure in heart, and who suffer well, who perse- are persecuted. Now, if you're sitting in that audience, you should be doing this. Wait, wait wait, a minute. How broken do I have to be? Like, how much persecution am I, am I supposed to endure? Like, how much mourning is the kind of mourning that would bring happiness? You you would be asking questions like, okay, this is the general statement, but what quantity do I apply? Jesus goes on to tell us right after that, the impact of that kind of person, the person who really is broken over their sin, the person who really mourns it, who really cares about others, that person who suffers for doing well, that person, he, he makes an impact in the world, and use used the illustration of salt and light, remember? Salt, you're going to bring influence, you're going to bring flavor, you're going to care about it, it's going to be good for the world, just don't dilute yourself, don't be so like the world that you don't have a distinctiveness to you, because you're salt, you are salt, church. So do what salt does, bring flavor to the world. He said, you're light. And how are they going to know? Good works. And if you're thinking, you go, okay, how much? How good is good enough? Do I have to be perfectly good in what I'm doing? That's what you'd be thinking. What kind of works? Well, All those questions, Jesus is getting ready to answer in the next chapter and a half, where he unpacks a version of goodness and then God's version of goodness. And he uses really pragmatic examples of, of things, relationships. And he tells us what God thinks of those things. In fact, he'll deal with stuff like our anger, tell us what good looks like there. He'll deal with our lust, our He'll deal with our marriages. He'll deal with oaths and retaliation and love of enemies and giving to the needy and fasting and love of money and prayer and worry and judging others. And that's a lot. Okay? And he's unpacking things that most people have a standard for. But he takes that standard and he pushes it beyond our reach. And, and that's where the question, how good is good enough? Because you might be thinking that there's a list to make or a list that exists somewhere that if you perform well enough at that list, you'll be all right with God. Well, that's not at all what the gospel teaches. It's not at all what Jesus is implying here, okay? So we got to deal with it. And before Jesus gets to all these spe- specifics that we're going to love to look at, okay, he, he deals with two major issues that set up his ability to teach about these issues, Okay? One issue that he talks about in this paragraph we're looking at today is his authority as God over the word. The second one is, is God's standard of good. So this, these things qualify everything else he says, okay? They're the introductory thoughts to specific instruction about anger and lust and divorce and worry and all those types of things. So let's do what we always do. Let's just read it and let's ask for the Holy Spirit to do the teaching this morning as we, as we listen. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning has been that you would um, reveal to us who you are and what you think about how we are to relate to you and to others. God I, I confess my inability, my failure, my sin I, I can't go a day without um, almost going the opposite way of many of the things I see written here in this sermon and to confess honestly, I struggle even um, to grasp it sometimes the way that Jesus implies it Lord we are we are the church we are saved by faith in Christ uh, we are Um, being completed as we speak. We're being finished as we speak, transformed over time into the image of Jesus. This is a part of that transformation. God, I pray that you take these words and you help shape our hearts and our understanding around what you define as good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, uh, and you probably noticed it, we're getting ready to experience, and we have in this first paragraph, a phrase that Jesus uses. I'm calling it a Jesus phrase. I call it a Jesus phrase because he uses it enough for us to remember it or think about it whenever you think about that particular section of Scripture. In fact, if you read this sermon or have anybody quote it to you or you recall it in your mind, my guess is this phrase would be one of the phrases that would stick out to you. You've heard it said, but I tell you, right? I say to you is what the ESV, the version that we're looking at today it's the familiar part to us in fact jesus uses it nine times in seven paragraphs it's the phrase he uses to to set up the teaching of all these pragmatics you've heard it said right Uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, and he goes on to redefine it, reset the standard, okay? Um, It's an important uh, phrase. It's the most repeated phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also a key phrase because it tells you all you need to know about the two main ideas in this paragraph that set up all the teaching that he gives in the sermon, okay? It's important. Four words. Four words tell us everything. Let's split it in half, and I'll, I'll show you. I say speaks of his authority who is Jesus. Well, he's going to tell us who he is. For him just to say, I say, to you. To you is the kind of responsiveness, speaks to how we are to behave based on what he says. That's very simply what he keeps repeating over and over again, right? I say to you. Let's look first at just kind of how he sets this up. In the very first three words, he says what seems like an out-of-place phrase, do not think. Because he's just got done talking about your salt, your light, and go show your light by the good deeds. Seems a little weird for him to come back and say, do not, do not think. Well, wh- why would he say that? Why would he go that direction? Because it's no doubt that people did think that he came to blow up the law. That that Jesus did come to go the opposite direction from everything God had ever said. After all, everything Jesus does is kind of mind-blowing. He's doing things we've never seen before. He's saying things we've never heard before. He doesn't regard this law or that thing. He doesn't hold to the norms, the social norms. He's doing things nobody's ever done before. And so my guess is that he's referring to uh, the the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, the the religious experts, these people that by behavior show themselves. And the scribes who spend their life studying the word, the the Bible, the Torah, the law, these people knew more than everybody and these two people are the ones who we will see over and over again in the gospel who make accusations against Jesus that he does not care about the law and that's why he starts, do not think that I've come to do that alright, if we're honest with ourselves, um, Jesus is different and if we just recognize how people are perceiving him being different, he is upsetting here Jesus drops into this moment in time and space and everything gets messed with stuff gets changed and and, and people are concerned Now, clearly, it's only chapter 5. I'm certain he's done things so far in in this narrative that has bothered people. And clearly, if you read the Gospels, I mean, you're not going to get 10 chapters into this where he is driving them out of their mind with different behaviors that they didn't think matched up to what God said, okay? And they were convinced one thing for certain. That man is a lawbreaker. So Jesus begins by saying, don't don't think that. But here's, here's why they got there. And you probably know some of this stuff. That guy eats with sinners. We don't need with sinners. In fact, the very first thing we see recorded when Jesus exposes himself for public ministry is he calls a dinner party with the notoriously evil people in town. Tax gatherers and prostitutes and criminals. And that's the only kind of people that could gather and he meets with them. Well, we don't do that, but he does. This man touches the unclean like lepers. We don't touch lepers, he's touching lepers. He sits down and speaks with women. We don't, we don't speak with women. We don't have those moments. He runs into the temple, we know later, and overturns the money tables. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. He does work on the Sabbath. He heals people when he shouldn't. In their minds, there's no way someone who followed the law would do the things that you claim to do, Jesus. No, no way. You Say you obey, but we're making accusations against you. But here in verse 17, Jesus declares his loyalty to the law. Look at verse 17 again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In fact, in verse 18, he says, not just the law generally, but every nuance of the law. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. In other words, Jesus makes a, a pretty strong statement. Not the smallest of letter, not the most insignificant punctuation in the sentence of the law will I ever neglect. I'm doing it all, every bit of it. That's what I'm here to do. In fact, he says in verse 19 um, that he doesn't break the law. He's not a lawbreaker. In fact, he uses the word relaxing. That's what he's referring to, right? Therefore, if anyone relaxes on one of the least of these commandments, one of the least of these commandments, one of the insignificant things you can think of, if anyone relaxes on any of it and teaches others to relax on it, he will be called least in the kingdom of God. That's not what I've come to do. Every bit of it, every bit of it I'm, I'm upholding, okay? That's what he's doing. He's living out every detail of the law, and he's calling others to do it as well. But that is not how the religious are interpreting. That's not how they see him. So Jesus starts out this paragraph before he gets to the pragmatics of what it looks like to do good, and he establishes some line in the sand that he is here for the word of God. Like the word of God is who he is about, all right? Which probably made them mad, to be fair, because they would just look at their list of things they thought was obeying the word, and they would look at him and go, no, you're not. You say these things, but you do these things, okay? Now, that statement probably made them mad. This next one made them want to kill him. When he says, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill it, it's like Jesus saying, not only I am for the word, but the word is about me. (laughs) Now, just get your head around that church. For this man who they thought didn't match up to God's standard, for him to say, this whole thing focuses on me. I am the focus of it. It's about me. What does it mean to, f- to fulfill? It means to carry out, to accomplish, to complete. I love this one, to make perfect. So if you were a listener hearing Jesus say, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the word, it's as if he said, I came here to make the word perfect. How offensive is that to, to those listeners, Okay. Martin Jones said this The central claim made by the Lord is that the law And the prophets point to him And will be fulfilled in him Down to the smallest detail One of the writers said this For Jesus to claim to be the inerrant exposition of the word Who has come to tell everyone What the law really teaches Is one highly controversial claim But to also claim to be the absolute embodiment Of God's greatest promises Is is more than a bit blasphemous If it were not true How do you think they heard him? These are bold claims. How do you think they understood him? They did this. I know they did this. Nobody says that. Nobody talks like that. We've got all these prophets. We've got all these narratives, all these Old Testament stories. Not one of our patriarchs came down from the mountain and said, this is what I got to tell you. They all said, God sent me to tell you. Thus says the Lord. That was their motive. But here, as opposed to you know, like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, here Jesus is on a mountain and he's speaking for himself. This changes everything. This makes him massively offensive if they don't see him for who he truly is. So he declares himself to be the one and only, okay? To have the authority above the Torah, above the law, right? So so let's stop for a second and make a a point, an obvious point, I think. For Jesus to claim to be the Lord over the law, for uh, him to claim to never have violated even the tiniest part of God's law. To have obeyed everything to its smallest proportion, right? To, to never have denied any of it. To, to claim to be the interpreter, the perfect interpreter of God's forever word. For him to claim to be that and to claim to be the focus of all the promises that you read in the law. Well, he's either the truth or he's a liar. Right? Right? He's either who he says he is or he's making it up, all right? And I suppose, I, I guess that's the issue. I, uh, I'm aware every week of the hundreds, even thousands of people that show up on Sunday. I am not aware of why you come. I don't know what makes you walk in the door. I don't know if, it, if it's like my mom keeps pestering me, I got to go to church, or my wife won't leave me alone. I mean, there's lots of reasons to come. I have no idea but if Jesus is either a truth or a liar, that's the question, don't you think? And I suppose you've got to put it in your lap. What do you think of him? How, how do you consider Jesus? If you, if you think Jesus is wrong, well, then you do what they did. You do what everyone else has done about Jesus. They just reject him. They try to put him in categories like he's a good man. He's a moral teacher. He's a prophet that meant well. Sincere as sunshine, but crazy, right? He claimed to be God, so let's just write him off. Let's just reject him. You could do that. But if Jesus is telling the truth about himself here in this passage, then we're dealing with God. And you don't have the right to just marginalize him. You need to sit up. So, if he is not the son of God, why are you here? And why do you listen? Why would you care what Jesus has to say about marriage or or worry or prayer? Why would you care what he thinks about money or about love, why would you, why would you care? If, if Jesus didn't make this world, and if Jesus doesn't hold it together by the word of his power, then what do you care about what he thinks you should do in the world? Doesn't even matter, does it? Shouldn't? So, some have come to that conclusion, to be fair, you might even know some, you might even be here, you might have concluded that Jesus isn't what he claims to be or what I'm claiming him to be. And so, so you've kind of come to the conclusion but here's this funny little thing, and it should leave a ginormous question mark in your heart. Concluding that Jesus isn't who he says he is doesn't stop your endless groping for answers. And that's, that's got to leave this nagging, gnawing issue in your heart. Because you can write him off, but you're still on the hunt. You're still out of peace. You're still broken inside. You're still looking for answers. You're confused, and you're alone. And here's what we typically do. If he's not the answer, I'll look for the answer out there. And most of these answers out there do hurt in here, right? That's how we do that. Or we go up to Sedona and find the vibration and find it on the inside. Something, something that feels good, right? We do those things. And maybe you'd be one of those who say, no, I haven't rejected him totally, Um, but Jesus is more useful than, than just to reject him like he's for emergencies. He's like, good luck, right? But he sits very submissive in his place until I need him, until I call him, until I want him, until I ask him. And when we relate to each other this good luck charm called Jesus, he listens to me. I ask, I tell. And he's very submissive in, in, in his relationship toward I am. It's, it's kind of like, um, this illustration might help you, but I think it is the human inclination of the heart to treat our Lord like that to do all the talking and none of the listening. Because I'm gonna suggest to you that for Jesus to claim to be who he says he is, then the response should be from us to lean in, to hear, to learn. Um, In Matthew 17, it's a wonderful moment where Jesus, his disciples, he takes his three amigos, the ones that are closest to him, Peter, James, and John. He goes up on a mountain. In your text, it'll have a title called the transfiguration. That simply means that Jesus revealed his glory as God to these men. Um, he probably did it for their faith. He did it for our faith because it's written in the text. There's lots of reasons why. But he's on this mountain, and the text tells us that when he was transfigured, his face glowed like the sun, and his clothes began to shine bright, okay? And, and to make matters even more awesome, here comes Moses and Elijah. So there's this big party of really great things going on, right? And Jesus is glowing. And what, what do the disciples do? Peter, what does he do? Lord, I got a great idea. I want to build three houses, And you can live in one, Elijah can live in one, Moses can live in one, and we'll just stay here forever. That's the best idea I've ever come up with. Lord, listen to me, because this is really good, and we don't need to leave here. And then a voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I'm going to paraphrase. Please don't be offended. Shut up and listen to him, okay? That's what we do When God speaks or when we think of God, we have a tendency to kind of rush over him, to try to inform him, to try to educate him about our needs or our wants or our desires. And here's what the reality of it is. This is a moment in the text that is screaming, listen to Jesus. If he declares himself to be the one and only, the interpreter of the word, the perfect interpreter to have fulfilled all the promises, to be the perfect keeper of the word, then we should listen. We should listen to him, not only because of those things, but also because he sets the standard for what is good enough. It's that question we started with, how good is good enough? Well, he needs to tell us how good is good enough. Don't you agree? He sets that standard, and he tells us in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who comes to your mind when you think about the godliest person you know? Like a parent or a grandparent that's long gone? You know, they typically get better with age. You know, um, is it an author, a writer, a leader? Is it some speaker somewhere? When you think oh, that's a godly man, that's a that's a godly woman, that's a that's the godliest person I know. Well, then whoever that is, that's the equivalent of this scribe and Pharisee that Jesus is talking about. Okay. It's like Jesus said this, unless you're holier than the most holy person you know, you will never get to heaven. All right? That's kind of how you need to see this. The Pharisees and scribes were the super spiritual. There wasn't anybody else higher, okay? In that culture, they were the example. You had Pharisees who majored on the outside, did all the laws, invented all this stuff, and scribes who spent their entire life in the word. Man, I can't do that. You're so much better than I am. And that's who these men were. In fact, they were professional doers. If God said fast once a year, you know what? If some is good, more is better. Let's fast twice a week. We're more holy. If God says don't work on the Sabbath, here's what we'll do. We'll write some thousand laws about what work looks like on the Sabbath. And we'll avoid all of it. And we'll just really be great at doing. And that's who these men were. Nobody there could imagine someone more holy than these men. And Jesus blows their mind and says, unless your holiness isn't greater than the most holy you know, you're never going to see heaven. All right? But here's what he's not saying, just so you're not confused. Jesus is not telling them, be like them, just bump it up a notch. You know? Be be like the Pharisees and scribes, just try harder, Just just do a little bit more, that's my standard. Be like them, just... Bump it up a notch. If, if Jesus in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount flipped the definition of happiness upside down by saying happiness comes through brokenness, comes through persecution, comes through service, comes through care for other people, if he takes happiness, which typically our world defines as selfishness, and says, no, it's selflessness, if he does that with happiness, that's exactly what he does with holiness. He flips the definition of holiness upside down in our minds. Because we measure horizontally, we look around and say, that is a good man. That's who I'm supposed to be like. And Jesus says, listen, if you're shooting for one another stuff, like you want to be like them, you're never going to see heaven. Because your righteousness has to be better than the most holy you know. In fact, here's the reality. Jesus exposes their problem with that one statement. You guys are religious, but you're not righteous. And therein lies the problem. In fact, Jesus is going to prove when he starts teaching all these specific things in the next chapter that if anyone is abolishing the law, if the accusation will be made against anyone, it's against you. You're the one not keeping the law. You're the one performing, but it's only external. And he basically says their righteousness is fake. It's no righteousness at all. And it's fake because they follow the letter and not the heart, not the spirit of the law. That's why it's fake. You do things. Clearly you do things. You follow regulations. But there's no connection to your motive. There's no connection to the heart. There's no connection to love. That's what he's saying. Do you know anybody like that? By the way. People who do the outside but don't do the inside. We all know people, have met people like that. They typically end up being judgmental or critical or legalistic. They're very concerned about how you do things. We all know people like that. So here would be a letter example. Here's the letter of the law. Don't kill anybody. I'm good so far. I mean, that's in me, but I haven't done it yet. So I'm 55 and I've not killed anybody. But then here's the spirit don't get mad. I got mad driving here at 3.30 in the morning, okay? I can't do that. Here's the the letter, eye for an eye. Makes sense, doesn't it? Like if, if you commit these crimes against me, well, we'll just load those same crimes up against you and we'll even the scales. That makes perfect sense. And then Jesus, well, here's the spirit. Turn the other cheek. I don't do that either. Hardly ever. I'm better. I'm more gifted at the eye for the eye stuff. Here, here's the letter, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Who couldn't do that? You don't have to think about that. Love those who love you, hate those who hate you. Done, right? Jesus says, here's the spirit, love your enemy. Do you see why the righteousness of the Pharisees won't get it, right? That it has to exceed that. It is much easier, let's just face it, it is so much easier to keep rules than keep the heart of God and his law, Right? I'm terrible at rules, too, so I, I think I stink at both of these. But, but, but bottom line, it is so much easier to say, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. But to do it from the right place is, is totally different. But here's what you need to understand about oh, fulfilling the law in its completeness. It's obeying both. What he says and the motive by which you do it, it's both. It is not like God said, don't worry about the rules. Knock yourself off, you're free. No, no, we do them, but we're supposed to do them from the heart of love, compassion, and worship, right? So that's the reality of obedience. It's fulfilling the law it's both. The Pharisees' righteousness was fake. It was fake also not only because they were keeping the letter but not the spirit, but because they neglected the the important stuff. You, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read to you when it gets super intense between Jesus and the Pharisees. In, in Matthew 23, you know, there have been people who... Uh, who have accused Jesus of being a little bit light. If you were here, hearing Jesus say these to the religious elite, it would just totally impress you. Leave a mark. Here's what he says. To these religious people, who he says neglect the important things. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and, and plate. The outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of the dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. On the outside, you look so good. On the inside, nothing lines up. And God wants both. God wants both. Pharisees love being nitpicky. They just couldn't be loving. And we have a tendency to lean that way too, don't we? We do. I can spot where you fall. I can spot where you're weak. I can see where you neglect things. I can point out. I can give you a list tomorrow of how to change what you do. But I struggle with the love. And it's both. That's the only way to fulfill the law. Yeah, the law says um, how to deal with people who owe you money but have you ever thought about the possibility that mercy, mercy, the love of God's mercy should encourage you to forgive, dad? Possible. Yeah, the, the law describes what legal reasons we have to leave our husbands and wives, but have you ever thought about the possibility of love leads us to forgive? Like details, laws, like we're, we're better at it than the heart of it. You get what Jesus is doing here, right? Where he's going. He is saying the Pharisees' righteousness isn't God's righteousness. And that's a, big, that's a big problem. So let me go back where we started. How good is good enough? L- let me show you the answer. Flip over, end of the chapter. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, verse 48. And then we'll be done. This is how good good enough is. Verse 48, chapter 5. You therefore must be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody encouraged? <laughs> yeah, let's go watch football. Um, <laughs> what does that mean, be perfect? Flawless? Never miss? Does it mean never dropping the ball? Many people haven't interpreted that phrase that way, but that's not what he's referring to. What is Jesus saying? He's talking about love. Let me back up and look at verse 23 or 43. Let me read to you the context of what it is to be perfect, All right? You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise in the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is perfect? Love is perfect. It's about love. Jesus said, here, here's what the picture looks like. It's love for your friends. Easy. It's love for your enemies. Supernatural. That's what this perfect is. And he uses the illustration of the Father's love for us and the world to describe how we are to love others, right? He says, listen, doesn't the sun shine on the, on the backs of those who are evil and wicked and the righteous? Of course it does. And doesn't the rain fall on the crops of the wicked as well as the righteous? And don't those crops grow as well? Of course they do. God is blessing everyone. And didn't God reach out to you while you were yet a sinner and save you? Were you not dirty as you could possibly be when he reached out of heaven and plucked you from the mess? Of course you were. Everybody here, everyone in the world gets what we don't deserve, at least at at a time. The world who says there is no God is breathing right now. They're going to enjoy food this afternoon and a good football game, and God is blessing them. And you and I, we know much more than that. We have received the blessings of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And every bit of it is a depiction of perfect love. And he says, this is how you do it. This is what it means to be good enough, to love like I love. That's simply what it means. That's, that's perfect love. And he showed us through the work of Christ. Well, let me make sure that, that you don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting, so please listen, that anybody here, anyone who's ever lived, can be saved by loving you and I are saved only by the perfect work of Jesus that we trust in by faith, period. But here's the outworking of that faith. It creates people who love. That's what happens. That's why Jesus says it. By the way, it's interesting to note, there are a lot of commands that He's getting ready to teach us here in the next chapter and a half, okay? And it's so interesting to me that every one of them have something in common: how we treat other people. It's about others. In Jesus' mind, this whole thing is sorted out by having a heart so transformed that the natural outworking is that others are blessed by us and loved by us. Okay, so let me make this real simple as I close. Jesus started this section addressing the accusation that some would say, you don't do it, Jesus. You don't match up. You don't do good. You, you don't obey the law. You don't even care about the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not true, not true at all. I'm the embodiment of the truth. I am the embodiment of the law. I keep every law, jot and tittle. I do it all. Um, I am the law's fulfillment. Every promise that God has made is fulfilled through me. That's what this is. But here is the essence of the law. Love. Love. I don't care how much you didn't work on the Sabbath. Did you love someone? That's what I care about. Isn't that what he said later on? We'll get to it in the sermon in chapter 7, verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is, this is the law and the prophets. What is that's code for love, right? How do you want to be treated? With care and concern and, and grace, right? And you treat others that way. And he says that is the law and the prophets. Um, that is the definition of love. Remember when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus? They were always trying to trap him in some angle. But they questioned him with a really good question. They said, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22. The love of the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember? It's the first and greatest commandment, and here's the second. The second one is like it, and I've told you this before. The second one sits there, and he says it because it's the only way to fulfill the first one, okay? Love the Lord, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is just like this, how you live it out, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor, let me define neighbor, the person that loves you and the person that hates you. Your neighbor is your enemy, Jesus says, as well as the people that live with you. That's who your neighbor is. And this is how he finishes that answer to the question. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Do you think Jesus is hiding what he means? How do you fulfill all the law and all the commandments and all the promises? How do you do it? You love. You love him and treat others like that. You love in return. So. I always look for catchy phrases that I can just grab a paragraph from one away and go. I think I know. I think I know what that means. And I suppose if we we're going to put it in a real kind of grade school way, we would say, "Don't act like them. Act like him." All right, that's what he's saying here. Act like the father. That's the perfect. All right. Don't just live by the rule book and neglect to love other people. Because what would be the point? Isn't that what Paul said when he's defining love in 1 Corinthians? Listen to this. Tell me this isn't. Amazing, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, if I have faith, so to remove a mountain, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I del- deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, if I were making a list of things to be recognized for as a believer, faith to the point of moving mountains would be pretty good. They'd be pretty good. Faith to, be, to believe to such a point that I could be burned for my faith. Pretty good. But here's what the apostle says. You can have all this stuff spiritually, but if you refuse to love, it's pointless. You gain nothing. The definition of how good is good enough Is love. Love for the Father and love for others. That's how good enough is. It's Jesus' goodness for you by faith that transforms your life to love. Make sense, church? Let's pray for His help. God, I thank you for, again, another reminder that what Jesus came to rescue us from, from bad definitions and bad expectations. Lord, we confess that these things are not natural in us, so do the work through your Holy Spirit, transform our hearts to love like you do, to care for others and to set aside ourselves. God, forgive us for our our failures and for our selfishness. Forgive us of a week of um, dropping the ball when we care about others. But Lord, we do, as we get ready for this list of real pragmatics of how to live out this gospel and to have the heart and the spirit of this truth I pray, Lord, that we would submit and listen to Jesus because he is the one with authority and he's the one who gets to tell us what good is. And so if good is love, love for you, pointed towards love towards others, God, help us do that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.